everyone. Welcome to SACSA's new podcast, To Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt. I am an Associate Vice President here at James Madison University in Virginia. And my name is Kate Radford. I serve as the Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. So if you're new to joining us, just to catch up a bit in case you missed our first season or our first episode of season two, Miles and I used to work together at Clemson and as context, our office at the time was about half graduate students. And through the years, we've reflected a lot on the training that we provided to our amazing graduate students and came to what maybe is a fairly obvious realization that we were the host for the practical experience for the students. And so we bore a great deal of responsibility for developing those practical skills necessary to thrive in student affairs. Since that time, Miles and I have spent a ton of time thinking through those skills, trying to understand them and understand how to build them. Um, And this podcast is to share those reflections and to continue to hone our own skills as practitioners and give us a chance to sit down and hang out and talk and stay in conversation now that we work at different institutions. So we're doing that via a grouping of seasons that each will be based around a specific skill. And this season, we are talking about institutional politics. Okay, Kate, before we get to institutional politics, I um, am very excited. Our first installment of Pop Culture, True or False, um, was just the best time for me, at least. A great Um, success, too. I mean, I think I got half right, right? To have 50%. You know, I'm going to keep score this time. So I'll I'll be able to report back on that with more confidence next time. So as those who are new to the podcast may not know, Kate is, um, I would say, intentionally clueless about pop culture. And um, so this is a test of that cluelessness. For anyone who follows pop culture or does not, this will probably be very funny for you. Kate, would you like to know what the theme this week is? I would like to know the theme. Yeah. Give me in a a headspace here. Let's go. Okay. Okay. Tom Cruise movie. So is this a real Tom Cruise movie or not? Wow. I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts about Tom Cruise. So yeah, let's do this. I also just feel like I need to throw it out into the universe. Um, if you are listening to this and you are in disbelief that I really don't know these things, I need you to know that this is like, not like a shtick. This is like a legit thing. I legitimately do not know pop culture. So I need okay. you to know this, this isn't like a you know, pulling a trick on you. Kate nurtures a few pop culture interests very intentionally. They're like mm-hmm. uh, plants that she's been growing for years and years. Yeah. Um, and those are the only things that she knows about. And you can tell her to do other things and she will not because she is, uh, it's hard to know this about her when you meet her because she's so affable and kind and thoughtful and caring, but she, um, is also very stubborn and not really that interested in what other people think. And so you can tell her to read Harry Potter and she's probably been told to read Harry Potter like 300 times in her life. Um, she's not read Harry Potter. So just, just as an example. Um, but I have listened to about four chapters of Harry Potter that Miles Surratt read to me when we carpooled together. So there is yeah. that. Yeah. So pre-COVID, we had this plan where we used to carpool to work together for like an hour and I was going to read a couple of chapters of Harry Potter every day. And then COVID happened. And um, I suspect that the Harry Potter and uh, the Sorcerer's Stone is still in the like in the door of Kate's car. I think it is. It's in that little side pocket. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, just to give you a sense of that. All right, Kate, 
Tom Cruise movie, real or not? Are you ready okay. for the first one? So is this a real Tom Cruise movie, true or false? Edge okay. of Tomorrow. Is that a real Tom Cruise movie? Edge of Tomorrow. Well, you know, a normal human being might say, I've never heard of that, so it's not real. But me not hearing of it means very little. Um, but I'm still going to stick with that. I don't think that's real. Edge of Tomorrow. I've never heard that ever. All right. So you got that wrong. That movie, I think, made a lot of money. Um, it, it's uh, with... Emily. When? Gosh, like in my know. lifetime? Yeah. I want to say that movie came out in like 2015 is my guess. Oh, wow. Um, Emily Blunt is in it. It's this time loop kind of experience. Um, it's a great time. Really could not recommend it more. 2014. Um, if Emily Blunt ends up being James Bond, which has been discussed at some points, it will be because of Edge of Tomorrow. So it's a it's a great movie. I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan, but well, anyway. I'll add it to my list, which, as you know, is you know about six thousand movies long. Because every time someone recommends one, I say I'll add it to my list, and I rarely watch them. But we'll see. maybe I'll, maybe I'll get to it. <clears throat> And your list is actually you just writing in the air, just like pretending yeah. like you've actually written it down, but it doesn't actually exist. Yeah, I pull out my phone as if I'm like putting it in a notes app when mm -hmm. I have nothing in my notes app. So. Yeah, but you're actually just looking at the Half Mile Lake Facebook group. Probably okay, probably. You, ready? you ready for number two? I am, yep. Okay. Um, School of Rock. Is that a real Tom Cruise movie? Is Tom Cruise in the movie School of Rock? Okay, wait, like School of Rock, Jack Black? Because I do know that movie. Mm -hmm. He's not in that. No, false. Correct. That is, uh, he is in another musical movie called Rock of Ages, but Tom Cruise is not in School of Rock. I would have gotten that wrong. I did not know he was in Rock of Ages. Yep. Um, okay, next one. Mission That's Impossible Silverstone. Is that a real movie? Okay. <laughs> Mission Impossible, I know it's real. I know that, and I know he was in that. I know that because while I'm not a movie or show pop, pop culture person, I do love music a lot. And I used to own a lot of CDs back in the day, and I still own them because I refuse to throw them away. And I have the Mission Impossible single that's like, you know, that one. Um, and he's on the cover. So I do know that he was in a Mission Impossible movie. I do not know if what you, the thing you said is a true, like, I don't think that's the original. I don't know if there was like a sequel and he was in that. So tell me it again, Mission Impossible, what? Silverstone. Silverstone. I think that single like had a lot of silver on the cover. So I'm going, yes, I'm going true. That's a real movie. And he was in it. Okay, this was actually the inspiration. That's incorrect. That is not a real movie. Um, th it, this was the inspiration. I recently watched the British Grand Prix, which is at a track in the UK called Silverstone. Mm -hmm. And Tom Cruise was in the Mercedes paddock the, the whole time and kept being featured on the broadcast. Um, but no, Mission Impossible Silverstone is not a real Are movie. Are there multiple Mission Impossible movies though? That's like yeah, a real yeah. There's There's a bunch, yeah. Oh. Hmm. All right. Here, are you ready for the last one? So, so far you've gotten one of three. Correct. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Is Jack Reacher never go back? Is that a real movie that Tom Cruise is in? Okay. Oh man. 
Is he Jack Reacher? No. No, I'm saying false. He's not in that. Is he, he Jack Reacher? He is Jack Reacher. <gasps> Uh, at least he was for this two movie arc. There's a new, very beefy man, I think, named Jack Reacher on an Amazon show. But Tom Cruise was briefly. Jack Wait, what's, hold on a minute. What's the show? The Okay. Are you yeah. thinking of Jack Ryan with John Cruise? Yes. Yes. I was going to say the guy from The Office. Yes. Okay. Those, those may be written. Those both may be Tom Clancy. Uh, intellectual property i don't i don't really know anything about jack reacher other than the sequel to original jack reacher okay. was uh no apparently hold it who wrote mm, no apparently this was created by jack reacher was created by someone named lee child they're aesthetically very similar i think they're both sort of like your classic dad literature but um, I love that you just said that because Corey, my husband, uh, for those of you who don't know Corey on the, the podcast, um, he definitely, I, the reason I know about Jack Ryan is because he watched those. So that feels right. Yeah. Jack Ryan's a good time. Uh, I thought the first season was better than the second one, but, um, that's, you know, neither here nor there. So for those keeping score, Man. Kate, self-professed, not a, and I quote, movie tv slash pop culture person got one out of four correct so um yeah so there we are there we are folks pop culture true or false tom cruise movies um yeah there we are so gosh you couldn't like give me top gun i know that one i could not have done that no no all right well that's fair mm-hmm. well this is going to be a fun season of me just really exposing myself here, but um, thanks for that. Thanks for those questions. I appreciate the effort you're putting into developing those. Um, <laughs> on that note, we'll jump into our topic. Um, so just as a reminder, we're going to, we're talking about institutional politics um, this season and want to start today with a question we're, we're going to kind of dive into departmental and university politics and like, how are those things the same and how are those things different? So first question, Miles, how do you think that departmental and university politics are similar? Well, <clears throat> I think that it's still about people. It's ultimately about um, the way that people are prioritizing things, you know, resources still are are telling a key story, whether it's, you know, at a departmental level, it may be about, you know, like who's supervising this graduate student or these student employees, who's managing individual projects. Um, And that decision about how to utilize resources is still key and it's still about people. Um, You still see you know, whether it's a director making a departmental decision or whether it's a vice president making a divisional decision, it's still about what's going to be the priority and how folks are getting pulled in multiple directions. I have a former supervisor who became a dean of students after being a director for a long time and told me several years into being a dean of students, he was like, I feel like I have a lot less control now than I used to. I thought that I would feel like I had more power and authority and I actually feel now like I'm more compromised in in many ways than I was before. Um, And I think that this uh, identifying these similarities is really important because I think that 
Kate, last time you mentioned dualistic thinking, and I think sometimes this is a space again, where things get oversimplified, you know, like um, this competition, this push and pull, the limited amount of resources that are available, the complexity of the people that are built into these things, uh, people's different commitments to departments or to institutions or to physical locations or to one another and friendships and relationships that are built into all these things. I think the important thing here is that there's like deep complexity in both of these spaces and that um, it is oftentimes much easier to project onto how you would handle something as opposed to actually the, the like real sort of scary uncertainty sometimes of staring into the multitude of options about how something can be handled. Um, and, and that's not to say that it's not, can be a helpful intellectual exercise to process those things. Um, I think it just sometimes um, the conclusion that one comes to, and I've, and when I say one, I mean myself, I've done this a ton, like, oh, this is how I would handle this. This is how I would manage this. Um, and that may be true, but you've got to, you know, like the, the actual squeeze of like getting to that endpoint may be more um, possible or less possible, depending on the reality of the situation that you're actually dealing with. So, yeah, I really appreciate you bringing up that the comment about sort of like power and authority. Cause I do think that sometimes when we think about like politics outside of our department, like larger scale university divisional politics, there's sort of this, I know I'm guilty of feeling like there would be this like sort of magic solution. If I just had more power, right? Like if I just had the authority to do this, then like I could fix all of this. Or like, if I just had, you know, the, the institutional, um, it's not even cloud. I think cloud is actually what we're looking for is that influence piece. It's like, if I had the authority power piece, then I could just like make this happen and this would all go away. Um, and that really truly does ignore all of the things that you're talking about, all of the like personal relationships, the push and pull, like the, the complexities of this, that um, power and authority do not just magically fix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, I, I think that that's true. I mean, you know, people work as complicated work. So, um, all right, Kate, so how do you see the similarities here between university and departmental politics? Yeah. I mean, I would agree as always with a lot of what you have said. Um, and I think for me, what comes to mind is that like, no matter what level these politics are playing out at, that there is um, there's expectations and demands from a multitude of um, places, people, organizations, whatever that might be. Um, they might look different at different levels, right? Like the expectations and demands coming at the university might, and we'll get to that in a second when we talk about differences, like might look really different than the ones that are immediately hitting your department. Um, but like there is an opportunity <laughs> to be frustrated and also to feel some level of reward for navigating some of those things at, at each level. Um, I think too, that like a lot of times, um, some of the stakeholders that we are interested in, um, understanding and working with, um, are, are the same, right? Like whether we're talking about at the university level or at your departmental level, the ways that you might interact with those stakeholders look different at those different levels. But like at the end of the day, 
those those groups um, are are often the same. Um, and uh, it's helpful, I think, if we can think through at the university level, like what what do we want our relationship to those stakeholders to look like? And then those definitely trickle down into some of those departmental politics that might be playing out as well. Um, I think also at the end of the day, and you spoke to this around like resources and relationships and decision-making and stuff, like at the end of the day there, we, we exist in an in institutional culture, right? And so our department, I think um, it, it's obviously part of that culture. It's not distinct from, um, we might have a unique like subculture in a department, but at the end of the day, like we are a part of that larger institutional culture. Um, and so you know, the things that we are doing in our department, our day-to-day activities are certainly influencing and shaping that larger institutional culture. So. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. I think that there's a, that larger institutional culture, I think people focus up on different levels of authority. You know, there's some folks who are like, oh, I can never work at, you know, like a public institution because you have these like public stakeholders, you know, the like legislature in the state that you're working in ends up defining a lot of the legislature, the governor, or, you know, the, like it is at Clemson, the like inherited board of trustees ends up having this like really significant influence on your work. But then, you know, so it's like, okay, well, the alternative is a private school where you have, you know, where you have, um, you know, donors that can have outside influence and you still have a board, you know, the the governance structure is still um, going to define you know, for both spaces, you know, the the broader, whether it's a university or department, they're both embedded within a um, institutional culture that is, you know, distinct based on that campus, but those sorts of external stakeholders. Um, well, and internal, you know, I think it depends on how you sort of define those folks and alumni and the board and that sort of stuff. But like people who care about the place, you know, every institution is a compromise. And I think that that is true. I think that that compromise you know, really reflects the individual, the departmental and the university level politics. Yeah. I think it's interesting, like where you just said a second ago, you kind of like, I could hear you having this like internal, like, is that an internal stakeholder or an external stakeholder? And I think for me, I I like to have a trouble um, sort of separating those things. Like I'm like, what, who are external stakeholders to our institution, right? Like in some ways, like I get that, like, yes, external stakeholders in terms of they're not like maybe present day to day, they're not like employed by or a student of, but um, I think some of like the politics, it is about how we define who stakeholders are and how like in their proximity to our campus and whether they're internal or external, right? Like I think when I think about external stakeholders, I'm like, oh yeah, like our, you know, our parents external, like they're not our students, they're not people, faculty and staff, but then I think there's other folks that would say like, those are absolutely like internal stakeholders to the work that we're doing. So I don't know, I think there's something to that, like the ways in which different organizations, groups, um, departments might define, not just for them, like who their stakeholders are, but like, even if we were to to create a, a shared list of the university stakeholders and who you would put on this list of like, what's internal and what's external and what does that mean? Um, I think is kind of a fascinating separate conversation, but got me thinking. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that there's a world in which faculty and staff feel on a day-to-day basis more external to the university than like some alumni do. 
even yeah. alumni, you know, may have not been formally affiliated with the university in 30 years, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a different kind of feeling about like what that, what that means to perhaps be of a place or not of a place, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, okay. So we got to similarities, Kate, what, how, how do you think about university and departmental politics being distinct? How do you separate these things in your mind? Yeah. Um, I think my like gut reaction and like the first thought I had about this is that I think sometimes, at least for me personally, and this might be a place about where I am in my career and just my experiences to this point, but sometimes I think like departmental politics are almost like a reprieve from institutional or university politics. Like it feels, um, I don't know, I guess it feels not lower stakes because I think the stakes are still high, but it feels lower pressure, lower, um, I don't know, maybe just easier to to manage because of the proximity and your like relation, the stronger relationships that you have in maybe in a department than you do like at the university level. Um, I think university politics often feel to me more about like very formal sources of power, which we, I know I've talked about a little bit. Um, and certainly you made the great point of your former um, supervisor clarifying that maybe that's not always true, that sometimes the informal power is still, or informal networks are still playing out at that university level and they're more complex even at the university level. But um, for me personally, I think that it feels easier to budge some of the informal networks than some of those formal sources of power. So I think that's a really key difference for me is that like at the departmental level, I often feel like I have um obviously I have more, I have both things. I have more power form formal power in the department than I do like at a university level. But I also feel like those informal networks are really what I like leverage and lean on in, um, sort of departmental politics. Um, I think the other thing that like really sticks out to me is I think there's often, I think where politics sometimes, um, turn negative. Cause I do believe that politics can be a positive force in some ways, but I think some of the, like the heat that politics get, um, and where it maybe turns negative is often about like a lack of clarity that like politics come up in like a being unsure about people's motivations or being unsure about like a direction. Um, and I find that in my experience, there's been more clarity at the departmental level than often at the university level. And I think that that comes from um, some levels of intentional and unintentional gatekeeping, right? So like at the university level, I think that there's some intentional gatekeeping. There's some information I am purposefully not provided given that like is, I think, a, a political move to like keep us a little bit in the dark on some things or to be unclear on some things. Um and sometimes it's framed as, you know, protecting or shielding or uh, help, you know, it seems to be to be sh- shaped in a way or framed in a way that's meant to be protective when I don't always feel it's that way. Um, but then I also think there's some unintentional gatekeeping that happens just because at the university level, we just have less information about the decisions that are being made. Um, it's a it's a definite difference in terms of who is in the room and, and who those decision makers are. Um, And I think where some of that gets complicated is sort of the the channeling of university issues through one person and down into a department, right? So like I am, um, I I sit at tables to make decisions at our departmental level. I do not at our divisional level and I don't at our university level, but there are representatives of my department at those places. Um, And I 
inherently fully trust those people and believe in those people um, and believe that they have our interests in mind. But I also have to always keep in the back of my mind that like, I'm only getting one interpretation of what is going on at those tables. And so it's not even like a, even if that person comes back and tries to, to share every detail and every piece of information um, and is really a transparent leader, right. And is going to give me all that information. I still have to bear in mind that there is um, unless they're like recording that meeting or recording every decision, like they're coming back with their interpretation of what that experience was. And sometimes they get it wrong. And that's not like a, a knock at those people, but sometimes I think like the room can be misread or, um, information just like, doesn't, they don't receive information in the same way that I might've. And so I think just like that lack of clarity is, is a, is a key difference for me. The, um, the difference in sort of understanding the decisions, um, is, is really significant between the departmental and the university politics for me. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I, I think all of that makes total sense to me. Like I, I have thought of this as like in departments, there's less cloak and dagger. It's just more, it's just more intimate. You know, there's, there's no place for people to sort of hide along the chain of command in terms of like, who's actually making a decision. And that doesn't mean that that's like what actually happens in real time, but in a university political space, there is an opportunity to sort of slow things down just by inertia and an action that the intimacy of a department just makes that more challenging. It's harder to, I mean, you can just stop asking questions about something. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to like sort of slow play and like make decisions by an action. Um, but so, I mean, all of that is, all of that is like very real. Um, the other thing is that like departmental stuff is typically not a, public dispute, you know, like there are not, it is of course a part of that, you know, it is a part of that institutional culture. And that's where you see these things kind of like bleed together is like when the institutional culture um, and politics are then influencing departmental stuff. And so, I mean, that can, you know, that can be public. There are campus controversies on a regular basis that end up sort of manifesting in that way, but it tends to typically not be a public thing. Um, and so, I mean, that's a, that's a different kind of, you know, that's a different kind of experience, you know, a decision that's like three or four steps away, or maybe influenced by someone that's not even in the chain of command, but may just have influence over the chain of command. And you don't sort of understand the nature of that. I think that financial decisions oftentimes are very opaque as to where that is actually being pushed from. Is this, you know, like a central budget office decision? Is this a like, president decision? Is this a board decision? Is this a your local, you know, like your divisional financial person? Is this your director? You know, like those different kind of motivations, you know, like if you hear, Hey, we have a, we have a shortcoming and there's a hiring freeze who actually made that decision. And is that hiring freeze uniform? You know, is that hiring freeze happening in every place? And then what does that mean? And so who subsequently has made the decision about that hiring freeze? Is it your vice president who's decided that for the division? Has the vice president been told that by somebody else? Is that not even a full, you know, is that not even a whole thing? So even just that like one, that one action can uh, make pretty clear the distinction between those things. Whereas something that's happening in a department, you know, we say, hey, this program isn't happening anymore. Is that a departmental decision? Um, you know, like 
and sometimes there can be the question still of like, where did this actually come from? Um, and, but you can oftentimes tell, you know, who's owning that and how that's being carried. So. Yeah. I think too, about like related to that sort of the, um, the, the buffer that exists between, we talked about stakeholders, like the buffer that exists between some of the, the stakeholders and like that might be influencing those decisions and the department that just do not exist at the university level. Right. Like, um, like I have a pretty hefty buffer between myself and the board of trustees, right. Or like accreditors or like some of these like people that have a lot of power over decisions, um, and like they're, the reality is just like, they're not going to be, those folks are not going to be in the weeds on the things that I'm doing in the same way that they are in the weeds on like university decisions. And so I think in some ways, like there's luxury in the departmental level of, um, having a little space and distance. And maybe that's a reminder to myself to sometimes be aware of that and, um, have sort of some grace for that when university decisions are being made and sort of the pressures there are just very different that public piece for sure. I think that gets to that power thing that my, my former supervisor was talking about, you know, like there is something about being at a seat where you actually feel really hamstrung Hmm. and knowing that like at that seat that you're supposed to be in, you're supposed to, that you're in, that you're supposed to be doing more. Um, Whereas, you know, I have another former colleague who used to have this phrase, make your role, your Super Bowl." And it's sort of like, well, I'm doing what I can within my, you know, within mm-hmm. my space. I'm, I'm trying to influence up. And that, you know, that's still true when you're at like a senior level. But I think it's harder to, I think it's harder to hold and feel on a regular basis. You know, um, you feel like your, your responsibility has spread to a bigger space. So. Absolutely. Well, and the ability to, to shift culture, to shift like immediate decisions. It's just, it's so much more immediate at a departmental level than it can be at the institutional level, for sure. For sure. So Miles, how can we navigate times when departmental politics and institutional politics collide? So what happens maybe when the expectations of the department are different from those of the university or other forms of sort of collision that you've seen in your time? Well, I mean, we've talked about that, you know, we've talked about that a little bit. I mean, I, I think it is an ongoing concern when the values of our staff are not aligned with the values of our institutions or sometimes more, you know, on a macro level, sometimes the values of our staff are not aligned with the communities or the states that they serve. Um, That is, you know, that is, that is a challenge. You know, we um, student affairs work is a work that cares about racial justice. It is a work that cares about, um, it is a work that cares about the welfare of its employees. It is a work that cares about people's mental health. And um, sometimes the way that those things are carried can end up being, um, can end up being a challenge to how people um, outside of the space think about those things. Um, And so, you know, the way that I, Uh, The way that I think through that is that um, it ultimately, we want everything to feel good. We want to walk out of work feeling concretely like we've contributed to something positive on a regular basis. There's a reason why folks have pursued this this particular kind of work. 
Um, and we want to feel like we've, you know, made a difference on a regular basis, but, um, I think we got to keep the focus, not on like what feels good in the moment and what feels like righteous. And I think we have to focus on what actually matters. Are we moving the ball forward on the things that we care about? And that's, and that's what we sort of run into and that, you know, what, what happens in these collisions, there may be, um, battles that, you know, there may be battles that we're losing in terms of, you know, this thing has been, you know, shut down because administration doesn't believe in it because administration is concerned about how this would play externally, um, because of, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and I think, um, there are sometimes valid points and I think this can be a regressive kind of way of thinking about things, but there can be uh, we, we can't fight this fight because we need to keep moving forward and this fight may be taking away from other things. Um, and so that is, that is how I conceptualize that. There is power in incrementalism. I know that folks, there are folks who really don't like that word and that that can be a way of like really stifling social change. And, you know, and I, and I understand that. And maybe sometimes there are really important changes that happen. You know, when, when I was at Clemson and we were working there together, um, our students um, in the summer of 2020 worked very hard to organize about uh, the change of the name of the Honors College, which was named for John C. Calhoun, whose plantation Clemson is built on. And our students led that effort. And that was a change that happened very quickly. Um, there, you know, was a petition and there was a lot of public support for it. And our students did such an amazing job organizing around that particular effort. And then the board of trustees at Clemson called a special session and changed the name of the honors college. It, it's not to say that that, it's not to say that that kind of change cannot happen. It just, that's not the only way that really important change happens. And so, um, you know, if the, you know, if the work that you intended to do and the value that you intended to uphold that day did not feel like it was recognized and seen at the institutional level, it doesn't mean that that might not happen next week or a month down the road or two years down the road. And we can continue to work on the basis of individual student development on a regular basis to, you know, build a, you know, to build a world that is aligned, you know, to help influence and build a world that's aligned with the values that we hold. Um, that's not to say that that is the nature of the work for everybody. And that's not to say that, um, but, you know, we all can work within our own sphere of influence to be um, personally and professionally. And I think that that's something that folks, you know, lose sight of sometimes too, is that like your values do not have to solely be enacted within your professional sphere. And I think that um, sometimes I think we we lose track of that. So, um, yeah, I just I say all this is not a sort of tampering in any ways. It's more how do we sustain ourselves and be able to sustain the work on a regular basis. And there there's growth that happens in all sorts of ways. So. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're saying makes me think about we have had um, candidates on campus for some some roles um, in our department recently. And one of the things I said in, in one of the sessions recently was was about what you just shared that they asked, you know, their, their question for the team was like, what what big changes have you seen in recent years? And I think part of that was difficult to answer because a lot of our team was really new. Um, and so people, you know, the feeling in the room was like, well, we don't, we haven't seen change. And, um, and I think what they meant was that they haven't seen 
big change, right? They haven't seen like something massive happen in a year that they, that they've been at, at Clemson. Um, I think I'm fortunate in that I have <laughs> some, uh, length of service to look back on and to say, like, I've seen a lot of change happen, but it's exactly in the way that you've described miles that it's like at the time probably did not feel like change was happening. But when I look back on it, absolutely change was happening. And I think that in some ways, um, sort of navigating through that and, and sticking through, which again, is not to say that, um, there aren't very valid reasons for people to walk away from a position or to say like, I, you know, we don't, we don't need to sacrifice our personal well-being to like sort of martyr and, and stick out something that we, where we are unhappy. Um, but I think if you, if it's not to that degree and it is an opportunity to sort of like lean into that challenge, I think that is where we learn a little bit about, um, how to navigate politics too, right? Like, I think I've learned a skill set by being willing to um, look for and commit to some of the incremental changes that have been, that we've seen um, on our campus and the ways that we've been able to move things forward. And, you know, it, it took time, but when I look back over a long period of time, I'm, um, I am thankful for some of, some of the change that I've been able to observe in, in my career at Clemson. So, I, the only thing I was going to add um, to what you were saying sort of about the times when these like things collide is, is maybe a, um, a word of caution of like watching out for um, territorialism that sometimes I think can happen when um, departmental, maybe multiple departments and university or institutional issues collide or when there's an institutional issue that your department is a part of. I think that sometimes either territorialism can happen or, um, within, you know, departments or what can happen is like sort of a comparison game of like, well, why is this happening here and not happening there? And, um, I, I don't know that that always serves us very well or is very productive. Um, I think like you're not to like sort of focusing on what we can control and what we have power to, to make a difference on is, is maybe a better strategy than sort of, um, playing the comparison game or, or, or being territorial over the things that we are trying to do. I think like sometimes we, um, focus too much inward when we could think a little bit more like collaboratively, um, at times where those, those collisions occur. So just a note on that as well. Well, um, we always want to wrap with a resource to share. And, um, I have been, sort of surprised, maybe pleasantly surprised, um, as I've sort of done some research on, on politics and culture and stuff like that on some of the things that I have found. And so I'm going to kind of do a broad plug for, shockingly enough, I don't know that I would normally rec rec uh, recommend this as a resource, but Harvard Business Review has a ton of stuff on sort of the concept of politics broadly. And there's definitely a corporate focus. I will acknowledge that. Um, it's definitely not a higher ed focus, um, but I think is still helpful. Um, one specific recommendation I have an article um, that I saw was um, titled The Leader's Guide to Corporate Culture. It's by, I hope I'm going to get these names right, Boris Groisberg, Jeremiah Lee, Jesse Price, and Jay Yoja Chang. Um, and it's really about like how we shape culture and understand culture and sort of the influences um, within institutional politics. Um, but I think because it comes from a business perspective, they don't distinguish really as much between like institutional and departmental. Cause I think sometimes those things can be like more one in the same in a co corporate culture. Um, but I actually think that that provides some good 
like food for thought when you read through the article. So I hope you, if you have some time, we'll check that out and enjoy it. Miles, how about you? Any recommendations? Yeah. So I, um, in terms of like the incrementalism that is possible, I think that there's a really fascinating profile of the social philosopher, Daniel Dennett, that was published by Joshua Rothman in the New Yorker in 2017. And it talks about, there's a line in there that, um, that I really like where uh, Dennett is sort of philosophizing how, you know, things have changed over time. And he thinks about, you know, things in terms of like, you know, millennia and, you know, it's, uh, you know, typical philosophy, like big brain kind of stuff. And, um, (laughs) but the idea that Dennett, I think is most known for is this idea of biological incrementalism. So things happen slowly over time. And then eventually, you know, the change may not be discernible at all. And then all of a sudden it's, he describes it as a whoosh. It's a, you know, a total, which is, you know, very academic, but um, uh, describes it as this whoosh of like, oh, change has happened in like a really fundamental way that we, that, you know, that we were not expecting. So, um, you know, if you're interested in that concept, um, I would, I'd recommend that, that profile. It's, it's very interesting. So, um, okay. With that in mind, uh, thanks to everyone for joining us for to practice, which is presented by SAXA. You can get more information about SAXA, the Southern college for the Southern association for college student affairs on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SAXA fan page on Twitter at SAXA tweets or on Instagram at SAXA grams. Um, Kate, anything to add? I don't think so. Thanks for joining us, everybody. All right. Thanks so much.